but we have the CJNG, which is the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generacion, and uh, those guys are the nightmare guys. I think one of the things is that narco culture gets uh, glamorized and they don't understand the violence level of these guys. They're very violent, they're very vile, and they are very organized. The scouts are from Mexico all the way up to just outside of Metro Phoenix area, right? So you could be 75 miles inland from the US-Mexico border and you will have a guy on a hilltop working for the cartel, living there for weeks on end, and he's letting the bosses know this area is clear or it's not clear or we have this problem or that problem. We couldn't prove that he specifically flipped because of that, but he was he was a bad guy. Yeah. Or turned into one. Yeah. So Ponch and John. That was it, man. That was it, dude. We were cruising. <laughs> There's going to be a, a, a big portion of the audience who has no fucking idea what I know, I'm talking right? about. I know, right? Which makes yeah. us the old guys. Ponch? Who's yeah, Ponch? What the fuck? <laughs> uh, do you know why he why that was his pet project? Why he wanted motorcycle cars? Yeah, so he ran on the... At the time that he was running, we had uh, photo radar. And uh, he was a big opponent of photo radar. Mm -hmm. And so he said, I'm going to get rid of photo radar as a sheriff. And I'm going to put guys on motorcycles because I want butts in seats and I want actual human contacts on these stops and that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, how long were you a, a bike cop for? Uh, I only did that for just about a year and a half, I think. Um, and it's crazy because my mom, my mom's always been kind of like, seriously, why do you, like, why'd you have to do this? Right. And, of all the things. Yeah. You, you want to be a cop. Okay. And then I got on SWAT and she's like, really, you got to be a SWAT guy. When I got on motors, she, mom was really not happy with that because she knows, you know, it's did just you, a matter of time. Did you grow up riding? Cause I know the, yeah. I mean th that, that course is incredibly difficult. Yeah. yeah. So you'd never ridden before that or, uh, or I had ridden, um, here and there on friends bikes, but, yeah. uh, j just, I was not a motocross guy. Um, I didn't really have my own bike or anything at that point. And so didn't have a lot of experience, which actually, um, one of my instructors told me like that probably helped. You yeah. didn't have bad habits that we had to fix. It's like teaching people to shoot that have never shot before right. is better than somebody with a bunch right. of bad habits. Right. Wow. That's still impressive though. I mean, that's not an easy No, it was, it was a tough course, but you know, the, the tough thing about it, it's mentally tough and people don't understand that because uh like the motorcycle riders out there that ride fast and straight that's not hard yeah riding slow methodical and maneuvering is the tough work and that's where they yeah. get you and that's what happens is you get in your own head yeah yeah, yeah. looking down yeah exactly looking down head and eyes head and eyes yep uh man that's fascinating um all right so after the bike project then what so from motors, I get promoted to lieutenant. So I test for and, and get promoted to lieutenant. And that was at the end of 2010. And so, so yeah, I'd been on motors for about two years. Actually, before you get into that, <clears throat> any good motor stories of chasing anybody or anything crazy? Uh, well, not, nothing too crazy. I, I think the craziest stuff from motors was uh, you realize when you're on a two-wheeled bike um, that every little mistake counts more. 
And so there was a couple of times where I almost cost myself a wreck. Um, one of the times was, and it's crazy how you go back to your training. I was doing an enforcement stuff. So I'm sitting there running radar. I get a guy on radar. So I put my stuff away and I'm going to take off after him. And we were on Honda ST 1300s and they have a lot of torque. And so as I started my turn, I gunned it uh, to get out after him and get in traffic quickly so I don't get smashed. And when I did that, I popped a wheelie. And so I'm in a turn on a wheelie on this uh, big-ass Honda. 900-pound motorcycle. Yeah, and I'm thinking, holy shit, because I'm, I'm like, well, fuck, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to dump it to the side, right? And and so I remember my instructor telling me, keep the wheel straight. That They pounded that into us. Like, if you pop a wheelie, keep the wheel straight, keep the wheel straight, keep the wheel straight. So I'm, that flashed in my head immediately. So I'm up in the air on a wheelie halfway leaning over and I'm like, fuck the wheel, keep the wheel straight, keep the wheel straight. And when I hit, it came back down. And when it did that, it actually snapped me back up and I was off and running again. But that was definitely an oh shit moment that yeah. I remember the wow. rest of my life. Do you guys, uh, cause in Phoenix and Arizona in general, it's a pretty big, uh, sport bike yeah. area just cause there's a ton of really good roads for it, you right. know, both for straightaways and twisties and whatever. Yep. Did you ever get into chasing bikes or as a, as a bike cop, do you not really mess with it? No, the only uh, like real motorcycle chase stuff we, we ever did was uh, the Hells Angels do an annual run and, and uh, we got in a few chases with them, but nothing too yeah. crazy. And we wouldn't chase like the sports bikes. Some of those guys are just phenomenal riders and it's way too dangerous for both of us to, to yeah. try and chase them. You just, just let them go. Yeah. yeah. I've seen some videos like on, I, th I think they're, carryovers from TikTok, which I'm not on personally, but uh, I think on YouTube where, and I don't know where these cops are at, but it'll, it'll have like, you know, cause with the cameras, the Insta 360s and yeah. GoPros and, and whatever, like there's phenomenal footage of, of these dudes doing some of what they do with these, you know, sticks and whatever. Yep. Um, but like, they'll pull up next to a cop and, and they're <laughs> like, like they get the go ahead from him. Like yeah. the cops look at like, we'll look around and then he'll be like, give him the, almost like the flight deck, you know, right, he's right. like, and then the fucking dude just pins it and the fucking takes off and whatever. I'm like, where are these cops at? That like, <laughs> uh, I mean, I would think, you know, that getting posted, they could figure out who it is. And those dudes are getting some deep shit. Yeah. For doing yeah. That. Well, and the problem being, cause you know, I, I'm like the next guy. I want to have fun and see dudes have fun. But uh, the problem would be obviously if they wreck now yeah. you're liable for yeah. that and they're going to come back. So yeah, that that's your fault. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't, I yeah. wouldn't be. Yeah. Uh, do you ride now at all? No, it kind of ruined me, man. Yeah. I, I had a personal bike. And, uh, um, so during that same time period, I had gotten a personal bike and, uh, after I got off, you know, riding for work, I was just like, I'm good, man. Yeah. What was your personal bike? It was just a, it was a Yamaha V-Star yeah. that I had bought off a of buddy and it was a cruiser. The, and the, like one of the big things was I almost dumped it a couple of times because my work bike was anti-lock, all the souped up stuff. My home bike wasn't. And, uh, I would, I would find myself riding it like I rode my work yeah. bike, but it didn't perform the same. So yeah. no, pretty dangerous. You. Yeah. Those nannies will save your ass for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so you leave the motorcycle unit. Um, I, I interrupted you. I just was curious Don't if you had any good uh, bike stories. But so moving forward. Uh, yeah, so I get promoted uh, at the end of 2010. I promote to lieutenant, and um, <clears throat> they put me over the SWAT team at that point. So then that was the point that they created uh, a full-time commander position for the team. And so I moved from team leader to team commander to command of the team. 
and uh, was our SWAT team commander. I also had uh, narcs in our anti-smuggling unit, and I had our regular detectives for a while. I kind of bounced around in the beginning. I had uh, property persons, crimes, and then I went back to smuggling narcs. And so ultimately, uh, smuggling, narcs, and SWAT was my my path forward as a lieutenant. Yeah, and that's kind of conver- all, all of your time kind of all converging into where the book kind of comes in from... Yeah from the storytelling standpoint of all the things that you've done since 2010, 2011. Right. And that, so that was, uh, the book itself contains mostly those nine, 10, 11, 12. That's the kind of the era yeah. of, of those operations. Yeah. Okay. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. All right, so going going into kind of where the the book comes to a head and in the years, kind of outlining fighting trafficking and cartels, I'd love to get kind of the thirty thousand foot view as it relates to the book, and then dig into some of the details of it uh, specifically. Yeah. So <clears throat> when I decided to write the book, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to tell some of the stories of some of the stuff we had done. Um, out, so our our county is kind of unique. So if you if you look at Phoenix and Tucson. Our county is right in between those two. So if you travel from one to the other, you go right through our county. Um, I-8, the uh, Interstate 8, starts in our county and ends in San Diego. So that's uh, one of the interstates that cuts east-west. And then I-10 runs through our county. So two major routes um, to get to the Phoenix hub, which is generally speaking, as they smuggle humans and drugs, they're smuggling from the Mexico border up, and they get into Phoenix and then redistributed, right? So our county becomes an integral part of that whole smuggling system and the southwest portion of our county is about 50 to 60 miles off of the actual international border but that entire 60-ish miles is wide open desert with minimal population and a lot of indian reservation and actually um, indian reservation that crosses over the international boundary so that particular tribe has land on both sides and and the cartel uh, uses that to their advantage as well so I'm assuming they can go back and forth as they want. Yep. Right? Yeah, they can cross over. Um, and uh, so the cartel will marry into them and, you know, exploit that whole system. Uh-huh. But uh, wide open spaces. And so a lot of open desert routes that come up. And uh, again, as I as we were working this problem, we knew we were working a unique problem, um, but you didn't really understand the magnitude and caliber of it and where it was going to go in the future. Uh, but we're working the problem. We're, we're doing these operations and we're kind of learning as we go because a lot of it was really military style maneuvers, right? We're doing uh, we're doing like ranger patrols out in the desert. Um, we're having to sneak in at night under night vision and uh, we're having to counter. They would have listening devices uh, like the amplifiers up on the hills to hear if people were creeping in in vehicles. We did a lot of vehicle borne operations um, during these these times are time in the book there that we're talking about. And so <clears throat> those interdiction operations is kind of what I went through. And I just picked out, you know, several different operations that stuck out in my mind, talked to some of my guys on my t- different teams at that time. And, uh, you know, Hey, you remember this? Oh yeah. And they would, you know, 
add to a lot of times they'd be like, oh, yeah, and then remember this happened? Oh, shit, yeah, I forgot about that. So got the stories all lined out, and then I was like, well, I can't just go straight into stories. I've got to I've got to lay some foundation. So I started the book laying a little bit of foundation about me because I was like, well, people are going to look at me and be like, this is a white guy. What does a white guy have any business talking about Mexicans and the Mexican culture? So I kind of line out my upbringing uh, in a in a gang-infested area, all Mexican gangs, um, where I grew up and immersed in that culture. And then as I got older, kind of the same thing. We, we moved from the inner city out to a farming area, but kind of the same culture that I lived in. I'm married. My wife is uh, Mexican. Her family's from the state of Chihuahua. And um, so lived that culture at home as well. And um, so I lay that all out. Like, here's who I am and here's how I know what I know about the Mexican culture. Then I go into the, the structure of the cartels that we dealt with. Like, here's how they were structured. Uh, then kind of here's how their their belief system works and even into some of their uh, narco culture as far as um, not only just their belief systems, but their, it's almost a pop, pop culture down there, right? They have their own narco culture and they have their own saints that they pray to and some of the legitimate saints they bastardized and turned them into narco saints. So I kind of line all of that stuff out and then go into the operations themselves so that people have a good idea of what yeah. we're talking about. So uh, when you first started getting into this, this was 20, 2009, 2010? Yeah, it was 09, Well, so when I was undercover the first time, which was 2000, um, the cartels were there. They just looked different and acted different. And I had a little bit of exposure then, uh, but it was much different. And as we get into the nine ten era, where I was, uh, where we're talking about these operations, that's where I was really in it, and we were really countering um, the Mexican cartels. Would you say, um, contrasting then to even now, is it vastly different, or is it pretty similar? Um, I, th I think it's pretty similar. Uh, like their operations, how they operate, are pretty similar. They're just more adaptable now different commodities and uh, much higher violence in technology. Yeah. What, uh, what are some of the things that would surprise people? Obviously the, uh, you know, just the term cartel and, and the cartel culture and, and a lot of intricacies of how they operate is, is pretty widespread. And there's, you know, there's a lot of documentaries on them. There's right. you know, news coverage all the time. Um, is there anything that from your perspective of kind of living at ground level with them for so many years that people either get wrong or that they don't realize, or it's a misconception. Yeah. I think, uh, <clears throat> I think one of the things is that, uh, that, that narco culture gets, uh, glamorized and they don't understand the, the violence level of these guys. Um, they just, you know, they think that it's this, you know, kind of cool soprano kind of shit, right? And it's it's not. These guys, they skin their own people alive. They they rape women. They burn people alive. They they use horrible horrible tactics um, to enforce their methodology. Um, and so they're very violent. They're very vile, um, and they are very organized. And I think the organization is one thing because sometimes it looks very rudimentary, but it's very effective. And uh, I think one of the things that people are really surprised by the most, especially when we would have like news cameras come out, they would want to, you know, hey, we want to see what goes on out there. Um, 
the scouts. And uh, I talk about the scouts in here. I talk about some scout interdictions in here. And what a scout is, is a scout is a dude up on a mountaintop that works for the cartel. And what people don't understand is the scouts are from Mexico all the way up to just outside of Metro Phoenix area, right? So you could be 75 miles inland from the U.S.-Mexico border, and you will have a guy on a hilltop working for the cartel, living there for weeks on end. Um, he has solar packs up there with car batteries, uh, charging radio systems. Their radio system is rolling encryption radios that are GPS monitored. So the, the bosses in Mexico know exactly where their radios are, who has them. Um, rolling encryption means it's very difficult for anybody to get on that channel and monitor that traffic. So they're very sophisticated in that sense. And that scout, his job is observe and report. Um, so he's up there with that radio on the mountaintop and he's letting the bosses know this area is clear or it's not clear or we have this problem or that problem, kind of coordinating the movements. And that's one thing that surprises people quite often. They don't realize how infested it is with those types of activities. Yeah. Wow. Do you have the, the int intimate enough knowledge to outline or, or timeline say methamphetamines from where where it's made all the way to the end user here like could, could you outline that process do you know all those steps um so really for me as a local <clears throat> the the feds have a much better so if i have a thirty thousand view they've got a sixty thousand foot view right um and so when you're talking internationally and when you cross that international border the feds have a much better perspective on what's going on in Mexico as it makes its way up. We were primarily, once it had crossed the line okay. and into our area, that's where we became the experts of our area, and really that's all we focused on. And, of course, being in the business, you understand um, that you have that. Because I went through what meth started as, as to what it is today, meaning um, when I was a young deputy, the Hells Angels controlled meth. On, on our side of the, the U.S. anyways. So the biker gangs controlled meth. It was all made in the U.S. Uh, it was made in, using older methods, um, much less pure, uh, much more rudimentary in how they made it much more volatile um, when they're making it, meaning you could have explosions and burn and all that stuff. Um, and then we saw that transition and that power was taken down to Mexico and Mexico started their super labs, right? And they're getting fed chemicals directly from the Chinese to make those super lab methamphetamine quantities that are just pumping that stuff up. Would you say in that shift from biker gangs to Mexico, is did that cause a rift or was it more of a working together like, hey, okay, you guys can make more, a better product, you can make more of it, you know, um, we'll now move it for you. Like, are they working together or are they battling? No, I would say they work together, but honestly, I don't think uh, I don't think the cartels asked permission. I think they just took it. Right. And and I think <clears throat> that it, as you watched it happen, I don't think anybody who loses control of a market is not going to be happy about that. But what was happening is the quality of meth that was being made locally by bikers compared to the quality of meth that the Mexicans were importing much higher quality, much more pure. Um, so it just naturally killed their market and they, they couldn't do anything about it. So I think they realized, well, 
you know, are we going to keep spinning our wheels here or um, just yeah. jump in partnership with this? And, and because obviously the, the, the cartels are going to get it into the U S and then if they have networks already set up, i.e. gangs, um, that becomes their distributorship. Yeah. Okay. So I guess, you know, cutting out the first half of the equation of how, how it gets from its inception to the border, once it comes across the border, can you speak to kind of the actions on uh, getting it across and, and where you guys come in and trying to battle it, as well as kind of the cartels that you're dealing with and what that whole organization piece looks like? Yeah, for sure. So um, even in some sense on the south side of the border, like where they're making it, we know, <clears throat> we know just, you know, from being in the game, again, that the Chinese are importing or the Mexicans are importing from the Chinese the chemicals, right? And then they have these super labs where they're making just a shit ton of meth and then they transport it up to the border. And so what happens is you have big bulk loads that are coming up towards the border, and then typically, and this would be meth, this would be fentanyl, it was even weed back in the day when, when weed was still a big thing with the Sinaloans. Um, those bulk shipments would make their way up to the border inside Mexico, and then they would sit in warehouses, and you would get small distributions sent out um, accordingly. So, and, and it was really almost like an Amazon, right? So <clears throat> you have dope sitting in these big warehouses in on the Mexico side, and based on the orders they're receiving on the U.S. side, some get shipped. So, okay, we're going to ship you 10 pounds here. We're going to ship 50 pounds there. Um, so that's kind of how it goes. And when it gets into the U.S., um, they will walk it in. They will drone it over sometimes. Uh, so they'll drone drop. Um, they have catapults that they've used, so really? they'll catapult it into a, uh, a kind of a remote area, and they'll have pip, pickup crews on the U.S. side that go grab it. Like what, um, from a catapult standpoint, what kind of range? Uh, they would usually launch them in a couple hundred yards, so they'd okay. be on the south side of the line, and they'd catapult it in, and they'd go a few hundred yards in, and generally speaking into open fields and stuff, and then they have a pickup crew waiting um, because they got real good at – Knowing where Ellie was, they have the scouts out, right? So scouts are all watching. They call clear on the on the south side. They come up and they they bring their catapults or they drone over or even uh, we had uh, um, oh my god, I just the lawnmowers that fly. What the hell are those ultralights? Hmm. Um, they would fly ultralights over with a load on it. Um, sometimes it was backpackers, so backpackers would just cross over the fence and they they would walk it up. What, um, what kind of load size are they droning and catapulting over? Those are smaller loads, but you got to remember when you're talking like fentanyl powder, fentanyl pills, even meth, smaller cash loads still yields bigger profits than, yeah. than like marijuana, right? So like a five pound <clears throat> load of meth is right. hundreds of thousands or is it not? Uh, no, not anymore. You're, yeah, but back then, yeah. So it was, it was um, smaller amounts were ca uh, getting higher cash value, but now you're, I mean, you know, like a pound, I want to say... God, I'm going to get this wrong, but I, th I, I want to say a pound is right around 10 K something. Really? Like that. Yeah. Damn. It's that cheap. Yeah. Wow. Because they're mass producing. Yeah. That's wild. Um, all right. So the different elements of how they're getting it, once the, the pickup crews, like where do you guys come in and, and where, where are you kind of initially going head to head with cartels and, and the movement piece and, and what, like, what are you, where are you guys coming into play? So once it gets into the U S that's where we will come into play. That's where border patrol, a lot of our partnerships with border patrol. Um, uh, we specifically worked with like their board tax squads. We would be out there doing interdictions. So as soon as it gets to the U S side, that's where we come in and start. Uh, and you work it a lot like you do 
like undercover dope, right? You have sources of information that'll tell you like, hey, they're bringing a load here or there. Um, we have some electronic surveillance that we use. Um, sometimes uh, you're working big cases that have wires and stuff. And so you kind of know communications going on. Uh, sometimes it was rudimentary in a sense that we would uh, we would do basic interceptions of their communication. Um, and uh, people will, this will blow people's mind, but uh, when I say we would intercept their communications, we would grab a scout on a hill and get his radio, right? And so radio is on, he's using it. We snatch him up without him knowing we're there and grab his radio. Uh, scouts' first orders were typically speaking, they would have to turn the radio off, take the battery out, and throw the pieces separately um, so that we couldn't get in. Because once, if you found the battery, if you found the main part of the radio and put it back together, you would turn it on and it would have a passcode that you had to enter. Um, and if you didn't know the passcode, you couldn't get into it. Or if you entered it wrong too many times, it locked up. Um, so getting an open radio was a big deal. And so if we could get an open radio, a lot of times you could hear their communication. But even if you could hear it now, you've got, they're speaking Spanish, obviously, and they have their own code system. So they would talk in code, so you would have to figure out their codes. But uh, a lot of times you'd be able to break through a lot of that and uh, um, intercept some of those loads coming up using that. So um, good old source intel, um, big case stuff where we're working wires and then intercepts on their radios a lot of times is how we would uh, work those loads. What's the uh, kind of the protocol for when, when you're interacting with these guys and, and you hear, you know, kind of some of these stories about <clears throat> being threatened and, and kind of the brutality right. aspect, like <clears throat> what, what is your guys' method of, of trying to avoid getting wrapped up into that kind of stuff or do you? I mean, are, are, you, are you having guys within the – interdiction units that you're working with that are on kill lists or tar or targeted by some of these cartel guys or yeah it, the weird thing is and it's changing but uh back then um like the older mafiosos from the mexican cartels still had rules and still had somewhat of a code that they lived by um and so a lot of times u.s law enforcement was off limits right because they that would bring a lot of heat and they don't they don't want heat they know that us interdicting their loads, they know that that's such a small percentage that they factored into their business plan. And so, uh, I mean, when we were most effective at, at ripping their loads, we were maybe getting 20%, maybe. Oh, wow. And so, it's so like a churn rate factored into it. Yeah. Wow. Um, so the short answer is no, at least back then. And now it seems like the new crop is kind of less. Well, now they're more confrontational and more defiant. And so I don't think they openly, they still don't openly come at us like that um, because it, it will attract a lot of attention and they're really running a business, uh, even though it's a violent business. So for the most part, no, you don't find that stuff, but you do. So yeah, when you're running those types of crews, um, you do spot check your people, right? You're, you're, you're running financials. You may have to do polys or CVS, uh, um, voice stress tests and stuff like that to keep everybody honest. Um, because they're, you know, their motto is plata or plomo, which is silver or lead. Um, and we've talked to people on the Mexican side that that's exactly what has happened to them. They said, Hey, we'll give you X amount of money to look the other way. And no, I'm not going to do that. Okay, well, here's pictures of your kids and your wife, and here's where they're at right now, and we're going to kill them unless you answer yes in 30 seconds. So um, th that happens, um, but we haven't seen that uh, exploited as much on the 
yeah. the American side. Have, to your knowledge, have any guys within your entire, all the different crews you've worked with ever flipped? Yeah, I, um, we arrested, when I was the, the narc sergeant or lieutenant, um, we arrested one of our narcs that had uh, got, I, we couldn't prove that he specifically flipped because of that. But he was he was a bad guy, yeah. or turned into one. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you do you know? I mean, obviously it's going to vary, but is there kind of a range of of how much a guy in your in one of your guys' positions is going to make by flipping? Nah, I don't. I don't think there would be a range. Uh, it would totally be difficult depends. because it, it would, yeah, it depend on what they're doing, how they're doing it, um, who they're working for, you know, uh, and. A rat is a rat is a rat. And so that's the one weird thing, too, is that the the cartels, as violent as they are and uh, uh, as much of a criminal element as they are, they still have a code, too. And so even a dirty cop is viewed as kind of a shithead, right, and, yeah. and, a, and a rat. Um, so they really don't they don't show them any respect, and they, they are not going to be big ballers or anything like uh, that. Yeah. You guys know I talk about sleep a lot and recovery. Uh, magnesium is a big part of sleep, uh, but it's not only sleep that being deficient in magnesium uh, you know, can, can cause problems with. An estimated 75% of all adults in the United States are deficient in magnesium, and it's not just sleep. Uh, it can be digestion, it can be cognition, it can be energy, it can be recovery. Uh, magnesium is a vital component to our body's process. And with that, I mean, a whole host of other uh, issues can, can come from magnesium def deficiency. Uh, it can be a root cause of anxiety, depression, insomnia, stress. Uh, all of those things combined are contributing factors to issues that a lot of people face. Ned has come out with the product Mellow, which is a magnesium um, product. It's a powerful daily super blend, and it contains three of the most bioavailable and nutrient-dense forms of chelated magnesium on Earth. Two of the most stress-busting aminos, GABA and L-theanine, and over 70 trace minerals. Mellow is truly in a league of its own. It offers 300-plus benefits to help with better sleep and optimal health and wellness. It comes in four very delicious flavors. There's lemon, lavender berry, pomegranate, and naked, which is a stripped-down flavor-free version that's great for adding to smoothies, coffee, shakes, shakes etc., uh, the folks at Ned have spent over three years developing their best-selling Mellow Magnesium Super Blend, um, and it's uh, you know they've really gone to the ends of the earth to create one of the best magnesium products on the planet. Become the best version of yourself and get fifteen percent off Ned products with code Mike Drop, all caps, all one word. Go to helloned.com forward slash Mike Drop or enter code Mike Drop at the checkout. That's helloned.com slash Mike Drop to get 15% off. These statements and products have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or condition. As you guys know, dipping is a big uh, tradition in the military. I used to dip. Uh, it's not particularly great for you. So that's why I like working with uh, Black Buffalo. They've got uh, edible green leaves, food-grade ingredients, no tobacco leaf or stem. There is nicotine in the product, or you can have non-nicotine uh, parts of the product. They have uh, long cut if you like the traditional route, or uh, pouches if you'd rather go the, the mess-free way. But they've got wintergreen, mint, straight, peach, and blood orange. Uh, and what I love about this is that it's it keeps in tradition with uh, you know that 
that routine of wanting to uh, pack a dip after a, a meal or on a road trip while you're hunting, hiking, what have you, uh, the way a lot of us used to do uh, either in the military or first responders or just outdoorsmen. Um, and you, you get to maintain that, uh, that ritual that, uh, that a lot of us really, really enjoy and frankly is the reason why we dipped in the first place. Uh, in this case, you get the uh, tobacco-free version. So, And again, if you want the, the little pick-me-up with the nicotine, you can get it. If you don't, uh, then, you, then you can get it without. But uh, it's everything that you love about dip, nothing that you don't. There's no compromise. Uh, again, there's long cut and pouches, edible green leaves, food-grade ingredients with or without pharmaceutical-grade nicotine. Uh, they've got wintergreen, mint, straight peach, and blood orange. Mint is my personal favorite. Uh, the pouches have won multiple awards from industry publications. Uh, it's one of Black, Black Buffalo's best-performing products. All products are proudly made in the USA exclusively for 21 and over adult consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Black Buffalo sells their products online and ships directly to your front door. Go to blackbuffalo.com and for 20% off, use the code MikeDrop. That's M-I-K-E-D-R-O-P, all caps, all one word. 20% off your first order at blackbuffalo.com. Warning. This product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Guys, as you know, I work with a number of different products. Uh, one that's easily the, the most near and dear to my heart from a cause standpoint and a personal relations standpoint is uh, Bub's Naturals. Uh, the hat on the coffee table sitting right in front of me belonged to Glenn Doherty. It was a John Deere hat that I gave him. He had it. Um, when he tragically passed in Benghazi. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get it back from uh, one of the co-owners of, of Bud's. He sent it back to me uh, to, to be able to keep. Um, Bub's Naturals is a tribute to, to Glenn. Um, he was one of everybody's, he was kind of that guy that was everybody's best friend. I, I met several people that considered him his best friend and he was a guy that was impossible not to like and uh, just you know caused happy waves that, that rippled through every community he was ever a part of. Uh, his nickname was, was Bub, and that's where Bub's Naturals comes from. But it's a lifestyle brand. It's inspired by Glenn. Uh, they give a ton to charity. Um, they've donated over $200,000 to charitable causes since their inception in 2018. On Veterans Day, 100% of the proceeds go to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, which does phenomenal work helping uh, active duty uh, and children of uh, lost active duty members uh, go to go to college or scholarships that they've donated a ton, and they also uh, are heavy into the recreation space of of helping people do do that because that's what uh, Bub was all about. They have collagen peptides, which I put into um, my morning routine every single morning, as well as the functional creamer slash MCT oil that goes into it as well. Uh, they have hydrate or dielectric uh, electrolyte drink mixes, which are great for uh, pre-workout, during workout, and post-workout uh, to get all the uh, uh, added sodium, potassium, uh, magnesium, et cetera, that's required when you deplete it. Uh, and they now have Bub's Brew, which is a specialty organic coffee that uh, is also very, very good. It's USDA, or USDA organic fair trade uh, it's Whole30 approved, which is the first time that's happened. It's free of yeast, mold, and aflatoxins. Small lot roasted, guaranteed fresh, and it tastes great. Biggest thing is, is uh, you know, Bubs is a family company. Uh, the way that they started uh, is, again, super close to my heart with him being one of my closest friends for a, a long time. 
And uh, I just can't say enough good things about that company of, of the product that they put out, why they started, what they give back to veteran communities and the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. Uh, and I encourage you to go to bubs.com. And now there's a landing page specifically for Mic Drop listeners. Uh, just enter the code Mike, M-I-K-E, all caps, and you get 20% off your first purchase at bubsnaturals.com. So that's www.bubsnaturals.com forward slash Mike. Uh, and you can check out uh, the Mike Drop landing page and uh, go support an amazing cause. That's a that's a rough. Uh, it just seems like a lose lose. Like, it, yeah. Know, why, why why mess with it? Um, all right. So, in terms of some of the stuff from the book, can you share um, some some of kind of the the stories that made it into it and, and or parts of it to where uh, people get a, an idea of what's in it? Yeah, for sure. So again, kind of go through uh, the the first part is just going to be learning about me and learning about the culture and, and learning about some of the narco saints and the narco culture. And then as we get into the operations, uh, there's a couple that I put in there that I, I thought were, uh, well, I, th- I figured they would make for a good read, keep people's attention and also give them information where they would be like, holy shit, we did not even know this was taking place in our backyard, right? Um and then some funny aspects, right? There's always those stories where you're like, holy shit, I can't believe that happened. Um, and so one of like one of the funny ones, I drove a root beer quad cab F-150 Ford and uh, had desert pinstripes all the way down it from running out in the brush and stuff. And during the time frame that we're talking about, they would run a lot of the same style vehicles, quad cabs, uh, whether it were Fords, Chevys, um, uh they, they loved the uh, Chevy Avalanches because the uh, it was a quad cab, and then it had that hard tonneau cover on the back. So a Chevy Avalanche, and this was when the Sinaloans were running heavy weed, uh, a Chevy Avalanche could run about 1,800 pounds of, of weed in it. So that would be one load coming across, and they would run that thing hard. They loved those things. Um, but there was one time where we ended up in a, a load came across. We were monitoring it. It gets to our area, <clears throat> we close in on it, and we try and stop the guys, and it's two Ford trucks, a red quad cab F-150 and a root beer brown F-150, and then I'm in a root beer brown F-150 chasing. And as I'm chasing behind them, uh, we're going down a farm road. Well, the one guy slams on his brakes and, and kind of skids out and starts doing donuts, and he's just starting to try and dust us out. And so the red truck is still taking off, and uh, I'm sorry, the brown truck is taking off. The red truck is doing the donuts. And as he finishes his donuts, he starts heading the opposite direction that we just came from. And as he does that, because I kind of slow down because it's getting dusted out, so I can't see what's going on. And as I start to enter into the dust, here he comes out of the dust. And we go almost head on and kind of swerve a little bit so that we don't hit each other. And I distinctly remember the look on his face because I could tell what he was thinking. And, and I, it still makes me crack up to this day because you got to remember that the truck that was traveling with him full of dope was one of his buddies from Mexico that he just saw driving the brown F-150. <laughs> and now he comes face to face with a brown F-150. And here's a white guy driving that truck. Yeah. And I could see the look on his face as we passed each other. He's kind of looking like, the fuck did that guy get our truck? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we turned around awesome. and he ended up, uh, we ended up catching him down the road. He wrecked yeah. out and we got him. Wow. Uh, what's the biggest load that you've come across uh, drug wise? Mm, 
think when we were doing this stuff, weed, the biggest load was right at about 5,000 pounds. And then um, when you're talking meth, and, and during this time period, meth and heroin were kind of the thing. Um, meth, I think, was right around 200 pounds, and the heroin was right around the same, about 200 pounds of heroin. Yeah. It's 200 pounds of heroin. What, I mean, what is that street value? Oh, dude, I don't even know. I can't do that kind of crackhead math. Yeah. Hundreds uh, of thousands. Oh, yeah, millions. millions, yeah. Millions. Wow. Um, what, what's kind of... Uh, if you if you could pinpoint maybe the the craziest or hairiest story from your time when you were you know kind of balls deep in it, um, one of the, I mean they were all they all had their own sense of crazy right because just crazy shit happens in each little one but uh, there was one rainy night and I don't I don't think I put this one in the the book actually but uh, let's be a tidbit <laughs> I just remember this one there's one rainy night where we were chasing them paralleling interstate 8 and so we were on a, uh, a little dirt road and it was raining and in Arizona we have these things called flash floods so it could be raining like 30 miles away and the creek here is going to flood because that, that water is all running down right towards the Gulf of Mexico so we're chasing them and and we would be lights out. So um, when we were in these chases, we were running under nods. So we would be lights out and the vehicles blacked out. We're running under nods and we're chasing them. So they're blacked out. We're blacked out. We're hauling ass down a road about 60 miles an hour, dirt road. So they're running on nods also? No, they would not run nods. These bastards, I don't know how they did it, dude. They had the best natural night vision that I've ever seen in my life because wow. they would run those speeds with no night vision on, yeah. uh, just using their eyes. But they had been driving the whole night yeah. like that. And a lot of times, you know, with the smuggler's moon, when you have a full moon out, uh, you have so much ambient light that yeah. that desert lights up. But uh, we're chasing them nonetheless, and uh, we're going along. And, and I remember, okay, we're coming up to a creek or a creek bed, and uh, so I start to slow down, and as I do, I see they hit their brakes and when they hit their brakes, they didn't have cutouts on the brake lights. So um, the brake lights light up. So I see the brake lights and then I see the brake lights go up and then I see them go down and then I see them go airborne. And I'm like, oh shit, like that's not good because now I'm coming up to that same spot. So we slam on our brakes and uh, what, what I did not see is that this guy at the very last minute saw that he was about to jump a creek bed that was bank to bank water hauling ass and a flash flood will take that truck right down the, the creek and he ends up clearing it he he jumped the creek <laughs> fucking dukes ahead yeah he made it to the <laughs> other side landed hard and ends up wrecking out actually and getting stuck uh, but we can't get to him because we got you know this is probably a 30 foot across wow. creek bed that he just made it across and uh, he hit water on the other side, but he was able to power through it. Um, and so we had to work our way around and, and uh, eventually got to the truck. But uh, it was shit like that. And, and uh, there was times where <clears throat> on Interstate 8, I know there's still truck drivers out there. Maybe some of them will be listening and they'll be like, oh, that was what that was. So what we would do is we would drift behind semis. <coughs> so we would get on Interstate 8 blacked out, uh, running under night vision, and... Uh, we would get behind a semi and use them as our lights. And so they would be hauling ass down the freeway and we'd be hauling ass behind them. They would give us sound cover and the scouts, cause there's scouts on the freeways too. They're calling out vehicles. Um, so it would give us, uh, we'd be able to hide behind the semis. And every once in a while 
uh, just, you know, for whatever reason, we would pass the semi blacked out and you could see them kind of, you know, swerve <laughs> as you pass by them. And I, I just imagine they're like, what the fuck was yeah. that? What's that fucking moron? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there was a lot of those, uh, those kind of stories going on. Yeah. Um, so kind of the meat of the book operationally was, uh, 10-ish years ago. Yeah. And then, so as, as you moved away from that, what did you get into? So moving forward from that time frame, um, I remained in that position, um, and all the way through to 2014. In 2014, um, I got moved back to patrol as a patrol lieutenant for a short stint, because um, at that time we had a boss who, uh, was an idiot and, uh, he <laughs> thought, uh, he told me, well, everybody needs to go do patrol time. And I'm like, I worked patrol, you know, whole career. I'm good. But he said, no, you have to go back as a lieutenant. So they transferred me out for a short period of time, uh, to a patrol lieutenant. And then, um, the programs we had in place because the guy they put in my place, uh, wasn't as familiar with it. And, uh, a lot of the programs we had in place for our SWAT team started to falter. And so, I think it was a year, year and a half later, they're like, hey, you're going back and you need to fix all this shit. Okay, so I went back to the team and was back in command of the team and uh, kept that until uh, 2016. In 2016, our current sheriff uh, ran for sheriff and won, and he got in touch with me, and he said, hey, I want you to move up and be my second in command, be my XO. And I took him up on that offer because I knew at that point I had 24 years in, and I knew I was coming up on the end of my career, and I felt like it was a great spot to finish because operationally um I, I have operational control of the agency and uh so the sheriff gives me his you know here's my my mission my values and kind of where i want to head and then i execute um so it's a really good place for me to end my career i've been able to have good influence like especially on my team because i knew the stuff that we needed that we would never get because of budget mm. well now i'm in control of the budget so our team i was like merry christmas motherfuckers because here we go <laughs> <laughs> so i mean you're kind of the guy then really yeah i mean because yeah. the sheriff is more like a figurehead hood ornament that's you know walking around i mean like you're you're the guy doing yeah all of he's this. he's doing the uh the political piece so He's going to the political meetings. He's going to the neighborhood meetings. He's, he does, our sheriff is pretty active though. He's out yeah. on the street too. Um, so he'll go out to calls and stuff. Um, but he he does all that with me in place to yeah. execute at the operation level. So kind of a, a hand of the king position yep. a little bit. Yep, yep. Um, so with that, I mean, like from your perspective, I mean, even coming and doing something like this, like if, if you're gone even just for the day. Right. Um, do you have to have somebody kind of in your place or? Yeah, I've, I've got, uh, um, so the way we're structured, I've got, so I'm considered or not considered, my title is chief deputy. So second in command is chief deputy. And then right under that is third and fourth in command, which are deputy chiefs. So I have deputy chiefs in place. So anytime, like right now I'm, I'm out of state. So my deputy chief is running operations. So he's nervous right now. No, he's man, good to he's go, good. man. He's we like, we have, finally <laughs> yeah. fucking get out of here. No, no, we. Uh, I I would uh, dare to say that we have one of the best leadership structures. Uh, we've invested heavy in our guys, and we let them do their jobs. And so, I want it to be like that when I leave, yeah. that they don't miss me. They can. Yeah, they that's can. good. How how many active uh, deputies are there within the entire we, county? We have 250 sworn, 249 sworn, and uh, then we have 167 uh, uniform staff in the jail, detention officers, um, and then with civilian staff and everything, we're right around six, maybe 650. Okay. 
so within the county, what, what's the population of? Population uh, of our county is only half a million. Really? Yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> on average, I mean, about how many sworn active deputies are, are out, out and about? Uh, like any given shift, you probably have, I don't know, 40, 50 oh, out wow. on the road. Okay. So out of the 250, that, that breaks down three shifts yeah. a day. And you have detectives, right? So, so there's detective division. We have canine division. We have an aviation unit. We have our motors. Um, so there's all these specialty assignments. So, um, when you add all those in, that number grows, yeah. right? And of course it grows more, uh, depending on the shift. So day shift, a lot of detectives on, a lot of admin on, that kind of stuff. And so those numbers are bigger. And then as you go into like graveyards and stuff, those numbers shrink a little. Yeah. Uh, how many canines you guys running? We're running six total. Six. Um, it, what's your position on them, I guess? Because w- one of the things that I've noticed in working with departments all over the country, you know, there's such a, it's almost like CrossFit gyms. <laughs> you know, it's like there's such a disparity on one end of the spectrum. You've got right. chiefs or sheriffs that are like fucking use them, you know, like, total gloves off you know take them off leash no pun like to just fucking have at it they love the dogs they want their guys being aggressive with them on the other end of the spectrum you got some that like it's like why do you even have dogs if you're gonna hamstring your guys that bad what what's your position kind of um i i think our position not just with canines with everything is is let them do their job so um we have dual purpose dogs so they run them dual purpose so if they're out to do bite work, so if we have a fling felon, then get the dog on them, yeah, and, and we let our dog do their thing. Um, we have some that are not dual purpose; they're dope only, and of course, you know that has its its place. Yeah. Uh, but no, we we don't restrict our guys. We, uh, you know, of course, there's case law. There's all kinds of stuff that the canines themselves have to to follow related to like using them for uh, patrol work and bite work and that type of stuff. But uh, within those parameters, we let them have at it. Yeah, that's good. Um, all right, so a couple going back to some of the kind of operational stuff, tying it into what you're doing now. If you break down, kind of as you look over your entire, would you call it a department? Mm-hmm. Uh, right? uh, well, we call it an office. Office, of, okay. yeah. Uh, when you when you look over your entire office, can you give us a breakdown of of the focus of of what percentage wise kind of gets focused on? different things um so it should be the case for any police agency the patrol is your primary focus right and so that's your your responding to calls for service and protecting your your public right um so that's the base of our operations is patrol services so we're providing uh public safety to those areas that we police um and so that percentage is probably 60%, 60%, I'd guess, maybe 65 is is um, patrol-based stuff. Um, and then you have all the ancillary stuff like the, the detectives, right? So they're doing the follow-up or they're doing the bigger crimes, you know, homicides. We have our drug detectives. We have our anti-smuggling squads. Um, those are all ancillary duties, and, and uh, each one has a small percentage because they're all, you know, smaller yeah. units. Would you say that drug trafficking and human trafficking are... are the, the biggest problem areas in, in the Phoenix area? Yeah. Um, you know, like for us and even the Phoenix area, we, we have all the normal problems that any agency deals with the, the domestic violences, the robberies, the burglaries, we have all that stuff going on. Um, and 
the smuggling piece adds just a whole new layer to that. And it has its own set of crimes that come with it. And that's one of the things I think people need to understand is when you, when you talk about, they'll say illegal immigration, right? And that evokes emotion um, because you're talking about immigrants that are mostly coming here for a better life, that type of stuff. That's what they lump into illegal immigration. But what it actually is now, it's not illegal immigration anymore. It is human smuggling controlled by the cartels, right? They're controlling all this movement. So that becomes problematic for us in the sense that, uh, A, they're moving humans as a commodity. Um, and I'll give you a story. I told you uh, these girls know they're going to get raped. Our air unit um, went out with, uh, you know, they found a group, landed, encountered the group. There was a female in there. She had a bag of pills. Um, they ask her, Hey, what's in the bag? Well, these are morning after pills because, you know, as a woman, we understand we're going to get raped eight to 10 times on this journey. Jesus. I don't want to end up pregnant. So I, uh, every time I get raped, I take a morning after pill. And she says that as a matter of fact, right? She's not emotional about it. She's just letting us know what happened. So, um, when you're talking about that type of stuff going on, right? Uh, so there, you have these evil bastards that are controlling this commodity of humans, smuggling them in, treating them like that or allowing that type of treatment. Uh, they'll do it to their own people. So they don't care if you're white, black, Mexican. They don't care, right? You're a commodity. Um, and if you're a male, you're you're probably going to face extortion. You're going to get some beatdowns. Um, you're going to have to do what they tell you to do, haul drugs, even if you don't want to haul drugs. Uh, there's robberies, there's um, assaults, there's homicides. So you have the influx of all that stuff associated with the smuggling problem. Yeah, I, I think that's the big thing that um, that a lot of people aren't aren't aware of is mm. is the kind of auxiliary nefariousness that it, that is attached or uh, you know alongside all of that stuff. Well, and I'll, I'll give you another um, piece to show you what savages these bastards are. Um, they had these things, they still have them, but they're not as popular. They have, uh, what are called rape trees and, uh, rape trees are where they rape women and then they throw their undergarments up on the tree as decoration, um, of their, you know, the females they've conquered. So that's, that's the type of stuff that they do. So you, have you guys encountered those before? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've seen them in our trees county. With panties all over. Yep. They got panties and bras on them. Some of them are full of blood because they've raped the female so black, so badly with their, um, you know, undergarments still on. Yeah. And, and they just understand that's, that's part of the deal. So, yep. you, so you have to ask yourself, or at least for me, that invokes questioning, you know, th thinking about the willingness to say, okay, th that's part of the deal. I'm still going to do that. Mm -hmm. Even though I know that's going to happen, right. you know, like that's such a, a horrible environment to imagine where, where you're willing to put up with that to, to risk coming here. Yeah. Would you say at this point, because the cartels are, are so so powerful and in control of the of the human piece, would you say that it's impossible for somebody, whether they're no matter where they're from, to enter the country from the southern border without having to deal with the cartels? Like, is that impossible? It's not impossible, but it's improbable because they're going to want their cut, and they absolutely control those routes, and so. so I I think they would have to deal with that. So it, in essence, is, is, it a, is it a fair statement to say that trying to sneak across um, would be no different than trying to smuggle drugs through their territory? Like they're going right. to view it the same way. Right. Like, yeah. motherfucker, this is our, yeah. our spot. You're exactly right. Yeah, because yeah. the on the Mexican side, they call it plazas. And those plazas are controlled by a particular boss or gang or uh, cartel. 
And if you're in their plaza doing any illegal, any illegal activity, you had better have permission. If you don't, they'll kill you. Yeah. Wow. Uh, what cartels are you guys having to, to deal with? Um, for us, uh, so like the book, we were primarily the Sinaloans, that they controlled the state at that point, all of Arizona. Um, these days, it's uh, still the Sinaloans are kind of fractioned after Chapo got taken out. Um, they fractioned off into a couple different factions, uh, but we have the CJNG, which is the cartel Jalisco Nueva Generacion, and uh, those guys are the nightmare guys. Those are They are violent. They are well-trained, uh, very militaristic in their style and movements and everything they do. What, what was the name of them again? CJNG is the initials, and it's Cartel Jalisco. So Cartel Jalisco New Generation is yeah, okay. what it translates to. Is it just those two pretty much for Arizona? For, for our purposes, yeah. yeah. And then as you, as you go out, right, because you have the Mexico border that hits different states, so like here in Texas, you know, the Juarez cartel and, and Gulf cartel and remnants of that um, kind of hit this area. And you guys have some CJNG as well. And then you had some Zetas or, or what's left of them. Um, and then you go over to Tijuana, you had different cartels in the Tijuana area. Um, and they all have these plazas. And it all originated, if you go backwards in time, it all originated when you look back to like the Kiki Camarena era when he got murdered. Um, there was one big cartel. It was the Guadalajara cartel. And uh, during that time frame, if you watch Narcos, they do a pretty good job. They, they had pretty good advisors. They do a pretty good job of showing how that fractioned off. And essentially, the main boss said, hey, we're going to be this conglomeration of cartels. You'll each have your own territories. We won't fight each other so that we're not stepping on each other. Um, and that became the original model. And then as time went on and bosses changed and infighting happened, it kind of turned into what it is. Yeah. Do you ever see any evidence of cartels battling for turf or territory in some of those boundary areas? Or, oh, yeah. or So they're constantly... Yeah, and uh, we're seeing it more and more. You guys see it here a lot in Texas, down in that Del Rio sector and, and that area down there. Um, and we see the same thing in Arizona now, um, like the Lukeville area. There are some gun battles going on quite often across the across the line, just across the line where you can see and hear and yeah. watch gun battles going on. And are you seeing uh, any of that spilling over across the border into the United States? Uh, not just, I mean, I assume probably not so much on the cartel versus cartel side, but just some of that violence. Are you seeing any of that spill over into the U.S.? Yeah, there, there's, I mean, you know, they're always violent. Um, but the violence, the willingness to use violence on the U.S. side has definitely increased. Yeah, they're just getting more brazen. Yeah. yeah. Any yeah. examples? Um. Not particularly. There's because uh, some of them are still connected to, to current operations. Oh, but there's, yeah. As you guys know, sleep is a huge component to recovery uh, and really all aspects in life. And it's something that a lot of us have struggled with, uh, you know, for a lot of our lives, frankly. Uh, as you know, I've been a, uh, a big proponent of Beam, which is a hot cocoa that, uh, you know, you drink before you go to sleep and it's helped tremendously in terms of hours of sleep maintained as well as the uh, quality of sleep. Today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, which is their science-backed hot cocoa for sleep, and it's got no added sugar. Better sleep has never tasted better. As you know, other sleep aids can cause next-day grogginess um, and just make you feel crappy, but Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, and apigenin, also melatonin, to help you fall asleep, 
stay asleep, and wake up feeling refreshed. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash mic drop, all caps, all one word, and use code mic drop, all one word, all caps, at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash mic drop and use code mic drop for up to 40% off. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Um, all right. So I guess kind of backing up and then looking at it from as somebody who spent 31 years kind of in the thick of, of the entire evolution, we'll say of, of border issues, you right. know, growing up there and, and being in law enforcement for 31 years, let's, let's say we put you in a position of either borders are president, you know, what make up a position where now you have full autonomy right to to do whatever it is that you want to do on the border to fix the the issues that are currently plaguing this country yeah. again there's no no backstop there's no kid gloves handcuffs you're full, full autonomy to do whatever you want how how do you personally uh fix that problem uh first thing would be designate those groups as narco terrorists and uh meeting that terrorist definition um, so that that opens up some doors for us financially to, to um, anybody who deals with them. We're able to lock those finances up, lock those businesses up, uh, because that will stop the money flow. Um, and then that also opens some doors up to uh, get uh, gentlemen like yourself, where we can get the guys that, uh, in case of emergency, break glass and send those guys to go deal with uh, some of the upper command levels of these and, and start taking off the head of the snake. So you would have you would send American soft into Mexico and uh, yeah, and believe me, I know there's going to be people that are like, oh, there's so many things you know, and I get that, I, I get the whole international peace and relationships with Mexico and all that. But if I was in a position where they they said, how how are we going to control this? And I I had the power to say, yeah, I would absolutely send our SOF guys in there because. Uh, you guys know how to solve those problems and American law enforcement just doesn't have the means to do that. Right. We don't have the means to cross international boundaries and go in there after these bad guys. Um, our military does. And that is a direct threat to the U S whether they want to admit it or not. They're narco terrorists. They're right in our backyard. Uh, they control the government of Mexico, uh, which causes, you know, more issues for us. Um, and I forget where they fall, but the, uh, the cartel industry, the, the, their whole, their, money coming into the country i i want to say it's like fifth or sixth on the mexican economy yeah um and then uh you know their control their stranglehold on the government so all of that stuff equals designate um cut off the money supply and then send good guys to go kill bad guys would you uh, approach it at all from a diplomacy or negotiation no angle at first no no no, we, I think we've played that game for years, right? And I don't think, I just don't think it's going to work. Well, I, I say that not not saying I disagree with, with your tactics. I, I look at it from a, you know, if, if I put myself in that position, is I, I would 
just in the interest of, you know, having served with enough guys who have fought in places where when you look back on it, you're like, man, were those dudes' lives worth what we got out of that? And, yeah. and I, I will say, like, you know, think whatever the fuck you want. Like, to me, that se seems more warranted fighting that because of the impact that's having on our country versus sending dudes to Ukraine or helping Israel out or Iraq right. or Afghanistan. All, all those things aside... Again, if, if it's me, I'm going to say, okay, in the interest of at least try, trying to avoid that, I'm not, not scared to do it, but trying to, you know, most bang for your buck. If, if I'm in that position, I think I would call the president of Mexico and I would say, I, I'm going to give you an opportunity to fix this before I do. Yeah. And I'm going to say, here's the deal is you have this amount of time to cut all of that fucking shit out, right? If, if there's people and drugs coming off, or, or coming across the way that they are like all of that shit. I'm going to, I'm going to say you stop it right. or by this day we're, we're undesignating all this and, and the entire brunt of the U S military is going to come to your country and fuck you in the ass. Like to, to me, I think it makes sense to say that first yeah. to say like, look, if you guys want to fucking kill each other and, and you want to unfuck this mess before we do, I'll give you the shot because right. I don't want our guys to go down there, but we fucking will if you don't like nobody talks to them that way. But I think, I think the problem with that is, is uh, when you talk diplomacy in the U S the U S is notorious for going back on its word or threats, right. Or notorious for not standing up and doing what they say they're going to do. And I think the world knows that. And I think we've seen it in Mexico where, you know, when Trump was in, his policies were good. Um, they were working. They weren't 100%, but uh, he was more of a hardball diplomatic kind of guy. And uh, they were working, but the cartels still held control. They still played the game. The Mexican government still played the game. And so, honest, like, if it was Matt's world, yeah, I'd call the president and I'd be like, look, dude, um, we're going to come in your country and this is what we're going to do. And if you get in the way, um, we're just going to take that bitch because it'll be easier to def def defend the uh, border with Guatemala than it will be the entire Mexican border. And we'll just make Mexico the U S yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think it just, it, it would take a, a strong arm tactic like that to say, look, like I'm not fucking around anymore. Right. This isn't Biden. This isn't Trump. This isn't anybody you've dealt with before. I'm telling you, like I'm giving you the, the, We'll say at the bro talk, the, the professional courtesy of saying this is going to happen. So if you don't want it to happen, figure out how to fix it. Or I, we're I think it. at the same time, like, um, and I get the diplomacy piece because I understand what you're saying. And, and no American life is worth some shithead in some other country. Um, but I think, you know, with, with what you're saying, if I, was do, if I were doing the diplomatic piece, I would probably still have a punch coming. So as I'm having that conversation, I would probably be telling him, as a matter of fact, in 30 minutes, you're going to get a phone call of three or four of the top heads that we have just killed and taken out. And that's to let you know that we're serious and we're giving you a little bit of help to get ahead of it because we've just wiped out, you know, four of the head dudes for you. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, get our guys in. They can do that quick hit, get out and uh, then let Mexico. But I, I guarantee you, Mexico's not going to fix it, man. They're. It's yeah. too corrupt. Yeah. Um, outside of kind of that big macro piece, uh, as far as the physical aspect of the actual border itself, yeah. border patrol resources, local, state, federal law enforcement outside of CBP, what would you do as far as that goes? Like, like what, what's your stance on the actual border patrol and, and 
shutting the border down. Cause at this point it's like, what does that even look like? Yeah, you know, be, be, like how do you even do it without shooting people? Right. You know? right. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily advocating for that. I'm just saying like, well, that's when, one when you have 10 to 15,000 people a day in, in one spot, like border wise, you're talking tens of thousands. Like how, how do you prevent? And that's that? again, where, <clears throat> where policies of past administrations have worked, like the remain in Mexico policy worked. So, when you're talking when you're talking about that diplomatic piece and you have because think about it, all these people right now are are seeking asylum if it's true asylum seekers the first country they come to that is not the country they're running from that's where they seek asylum they don't just keep going and going and going until they get to the country they eventually want to be in that's what's happening now is they're going through several countries to get to the US and then saying we're seeking asylum so if you hold those count or those countries that they've passed through more accountable when they did that, that was working. You did not see those caravans coming through with those mass numbers. And then as it relates to the border itself, they need to finish the wall because here's what we have down there. We have, there's, there's some terrain that just by itself, the terrain denies access. Um, so those, those spots you don't have to mess with. Anywhere else, we need the physical barrier. And then in addition to the physical barrier, they need w what helps border patrol in the areas that they have physical barrier, backed up by surveillance and technology, backed up by the means to um, quickly transport to and from those areas, uh, like improved roads. That's where they're most successful at apprehensions or decreasing the traffic across. Yuma sector, way back in the day when they, Yuma sector of Arizona, when they built that wall and put in the technology and the roads, they dropped incursions 95%. So yeah. it works. Yeah, We just have to do it right. And as far as the way that things are processed now, I mean, I don't want to assume, but you, you would say we're not processing you and letting you go. You're turning the fuck around. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. You ship them back. To me, that seems like a no-brainer. Right. I mean, I, you know, so which leads to the next question of from a morale standpoint, like the overall pulse of, of your guys. I mean, you being the number two guy in the entire county, how much uh, kind of shooting the, the shit with – some of the lower guys in the totem pole to see where, where they're at morale wise, what they think of, of how things are going. Like, you know, what is that like? And also what kind of latitude do you guys have as a non-federal law enforcement agency? What, what is your left and right flank for how you deal with people who are here illegally? So I think for morale, I'll, I'll hit that piece first for us. It's different, right? Border patrol's morale is shit right now uh, because they can't fight the fight they need to fight. For us, because of our boundaries, I don't think it has the same effect on us because illegal immigration is not really our focus or our problem as a local LE, uh, nor do we have really the authority to deal with it. So for us, it's just kind of like, ah, we, we have this thing and here you go, feds, how are you going to fix it? So it doesn't necessarily get our guys uh, down in the dumps um, as far as, oh, you know, woe is me and we nothing's working. They all understand that the current president and the current policies suck and that what it's doing to our country sucks. Um, but what we're allowed to do is essentially, I'll, I'll give you an example. If we stop a load of, of uh, humans being smuggled, we can hold them. We can call Border Patrol or uh, Homeland Security and we can say, hey, here's who we are. Here's where we're at. Here's what we have. And they say, okay, we have somebody that we can send you or we don't have anybody to send you. If they have somebody, we stand by, they come get them and they process them. 
if they don't have anybody, we release them and we just let them go into the country unchecked. So, and that, from what your experience is in talking with your guys, that doesn't impact their morale? No, I think they just understand that's the system. That, wow. That's how it goes because it's been like that forever since I was a baby deputy. That's always how it's been. We don't have the authority. Our state tried to enact a, a law that gave us local authority or state authority, um, and quickly the feds stepped in and, and said, nope, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, hmm. I mean, to me, the so, – well, so I guess taking one step back, if – if you guys uh, stop somebody, and let's say it's not not arrest for some other law that was broken, right. but for whatever reason, let's say it's a it's a misdemeanor traffic violation, you know, whatever. And do you even ask them if they're a citizen? Is that even something? Yeah, it'll come up in conversation. Um, our guys will ask, you know, hey, where are you going? Where are you coming from? Are you here illegally? So let's say they're driving, right, mm-hmm. and they don't have a license. Yeah. So. Um, then it's just a matter of questioning where they're from and, and uh, inevitably you'll get to the, the point where you can figure out like they're, they're not in the country legally just by uh, the, the questions. Deductive reasoning. Yeah. in the questions that they're answering. And so if that's the case, like let's say somebody's here illegally and they're driving without a license, are they getting arrested for that? No, typically not because uh, you know, something like that. So driving without a license would really be a civil traffic violation. So they could get a ticket, they'd so ticket and kick loose. Um, and again, if we determine, hey, they're probably here illegally, and Border Patrol says we're not coming to get them, then they're they're in. And so, same thing. Even if you, if Border Patrol says, yeah, we'll come get them, mm-hmm. the end result's the same. They process them and let them go anyway. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And there's actually <laughs> there's a newly formed business. Um, it's it's essentially uh, an Uber for illegals. Uh, so Border Patrol processes these people down close to the, the border. Um, gets them in the system, gives them their paperwork and says, okay, you're free to go. And now we have people who are coming out of the Valley area, going down there and just waiting at those centers where they're releasing them and then saying, Hey, X amount of dollars, I'll get you up to Phoenix. And they're making sure that they have all their paperwork. Cause we've stopped these people. And uh, when we stop them, we're like, Hey, you got a carload of illegals. Yes, sir. But they've all been processed by border patrol. So they're here essentially legally now because Border Patrol has allowed them in. And so you have now a transport company making money off of getting illegals closer or more interior. How do you feel about that? Uh, Just the overarching processing and letting go. Dude, it's it's bad. It's bad all the way around because they're processing them. Um, they're not necessarily getting all the information on these people they're letting them into the country. It's, you know, there's so many problems. It's taxing our system. Um, they're saying you promise to appear in five to seven years because that's how far out the calendar is now um, and releasing them into the interior and have no way of tracking them. And I'll give you an example. Um, last year, it was right around 150,000 unaccompanied minors that came into the U.S. And of that 150 k uh, the government admits, our government admits that they don't know where 85,000 of them are. Jesus. All right. Um, can we play a, a, a hypothetical scenario? Yeah. Let's say you're back on patrol and you pull me over. Yep. Right. And you say license and registration. I say, yeah, I don't have one. Well, then I just ask you, do you have any form of ID? And No. You don't have anything? Nothing. 
Yeah, then uh, I'm probably going to hold on to you because I got to prove who you are. Uh, the, the driving piece uh, is a privilege, right? And same in every state. It's a privilege to drive. You have to have some form of uh, driver's license. And then you have to, if you violated a traffic law and I encounter you, I then have to be able to identify you. So if you have no means of identification, I then get to hold you until I can determine who you are, actually are. So in, in the case of a van full of people who are here illegally that fall into that same category, yeah. okay, so, yeah, I don't, I don't have anything. Sorry, you're going to hang on to me for how long? Well, that will depend now. So if you throw in the caveat that they say, hey, we're here from another country and we don't have any ID, um, it changes the rules for us as locals. So, so the lesson learned here is <laughs> if I'm in Arizona and I get pulled over, license and registration, no. No, no habla. No, I'm not, I'm not from here. Like, yeah, I was, I was speeding and, and you pulled me over, but no, I don't have a license. I'm not from here. Like, all right, well, fucking have a nice day. That's the response. I can't say that that wouldn't happen. Um, I mean, but again, am I you, fucking crazy? Like, how no, is that? No, I, I know it's it black is white and up is down, bro. Uh, believe me, we're just as baffled by this whole system where they've, they've essentially legalized the illegal part. Um, yeah, I and, mean, and the citizen, uh, so you as an American citizen, if you don't have your license and registration with you, you face more consequences. Right. I mean, to me, to me, that's the, that's the biggest, dumbest takeaway from this entire interview is the next time I get pulled over, <laughs> I'm going to say, no, I don't have a license. No, I'm not from here. I'm from fucking Belgium and I'm here illegally. Oh, okay. Well, fucking have a nice day then. Like that's, what's going to happen. It Holy could shit. Very, could very possibly like, talk about a fucking life hack. <laughs> Zach, are you getting this? The fuck am I missing? <laughs> Holy shit. Man, what a fucking twisted world we live in. Um, <laughs> Sorry, bro. <laughs> well, I mean, again, I'm just sitting here baffled. Like, what's the incentive to not do that? Oh, I, well. I, yeah. I mean, because honestly, like, I mean, all joking aside, like, what would you do right, if I said, yeah, no, I'm from right. Belgium? Like, I speak perfect, you know, speak English, but I'm not a U.S. citizen. Yeah, no, I, it, I'm from it Belgium. Be, I was speeding. I'm sorry, but I've one got one of those conundrums where I would have to say, like, I, you know, because there's, there's always, as a cop, there's always those things you come across where you're like, huh, huh, I haven't dealt with this before. Yeah. So uh, let's figure it out and, you know, probably call a sergeant over and be like, hey, Sarge. So this guy says he's from Belgium. He doesn't have any ID, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, uh, yeah. So it is a possible life hack. I, I can't deny that. Man, that is crazy. <laughs> crazy that in, in today's day and age in this society that, that we're that fucked up in, yeah. internally where we've put ourselves in that position to where that's even a thing. It's like Bidenomics. Yeah. God, man. Um, all right. So going back to just kind of as we wrap up here, I guess the um, you've got the book out. Um, where you're at now career-wise, like kind of – wrap it all up in terms of what you're focused on and, and what what's next yeah so i'm at the end uh i've probably got i'll probably be retiring next year in 2025 uh most likely uh, punching out that'll uh, put me 32 years in the business and uh um during the last decade even a couple decades I've, I've always liked teaching um I've always enjoyed that piece. So I've been doing more of that. I've been doing some speaking. I'm a, a leadership student and I've, I've worked at developing leaders with, you know, in the organization and some of that stuff. Um, and so that's kind of been my focus is uh, as I approach the end of my career, 
what can I do in the outside world where what I've learned here translates over? Um, and I think that's kind of my focus is, is uh, the leadership stuff, developing leaders, uh, speaking to um, groups that are trying to better themselves. And so that's kind of where I'm breaking into now and getting my foot in that door so that as I progress through the next year or two, um, I have kind of that platform established and able to step into that realm. Yeah. And uh, any interest in like starting a consulting company to, to accommodate that or? Yeah. And, and actually when I wrote the book, you know, I started my own company, so I'm, I'm a small company and uh, I am going to take that and branch out of that uh, for the consulting piece and the speaking piece. Uh, all right. So where, where can, uh, where can we find you and uh, you know, social media wise, get the book, et cetera. Uh, the book, uh, you can find me and, and kind of get, you know, if you want to see my bio and, and, you know, my background and stuff is on my website. It is uh, one time nation, all one word.com. Um, that tells you about me. You can get the book there, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, I'm most active on Instagram. I can't do multiple platforms because I just don't have the time. So yeah. Instagram is where I usually hang out for social media. And I am, uh, my handle there is at deputy underscore one time. Amen. Uh, do you have a favorite dog story before we, uh, other than oh. dragging the dead, dead guy down the bus steps? Well, yeah. So <clears throat> we had a dog named Cujo that was on it's our, apt. yeah, on our, on our uh, team. And, and this was when I was working interdiction and uh, the canines were assigned to that. I was not a canine, but one of the guys was. And Cujo had uh, replacement canines that were titanium. So he had a real evil looking smile. <laughs> And Cujo was notorious for uh, biting people that didn't need bitten when he was off lead. <laughs> Sounds right? familiar. And so uh, his handler was a uh, big old dude and uh, had a little bit of a stutter. And so I had a semi stopped on the side of the highway and I had called for him to bring his dog over to, because uh, to, it was a dual purpose dog. So I wanted to run the dog because I thought I had a load of dope. And I'm up in the back of the truck and I'm kind of looking through stuff and, uh, you know, trying to find the dope and all of a sudden i hear don't move and i was like what the fuck? so i stop and i turn around and about 10 yards behind me cujo was eyeballing me no uh he was no collar no nothing right he was or he had his collar but he was off lead and no muzzle and i'm like oh shit this is gonna hurt so bad because i already knew he, you know he was eyeballing me and uh, that was the one time that I actually observed him return to the handler on the handler's command. <laughs> so, actually had a by the recall. grace of God, I yeah. did not get bitten by Cujo, but wow. it was close. Did he? Did he have a lot of bites? Uh, yes, operationally too. Uh, yeah, both. Yeah, operationally and uh, accidentally. accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I sure appreciate you taking the time. I mean, to me, it's it's an honor to have somebody that's as high up in a county that that's as big and popular as, as the one that you're in. It's uh it's very humbling for you to, to take time off to come here. Oh, it's humbling to be here, brother. Um, I can't thank you enough for what you do. All you guys, I mean, law enforcement, um, you guys have such a tough job. Uh, I don't envy any of you, but I sure <laughs> as fuck appreciate all of you. Well, thank um, you, man. Cause you, you guys are the, are the only thing between us and I don't even want to think about it, you uh -huh. know? So I, I'm you. very appreciative for men like you, uh, and, and everybody that, that uh, fills a similar role. So I wanted to say thank you for that, yep. as well as some uh, some gifts for coming on the show. Oh, outstanding. If yes. you could, it's uh, John Johnson and Champion Choice Silver in California. Ooh. So you got 
put put your shit kickers Dude, on and bust out the that. buckle. That yeah. is nice, bro. Yeah, I'm going to rock that for sure. Awesome. Uh, you can't yes. wear that in uniform, can you, or could you? Uh, you know, with my sheriff, I might be able might to get away with it, yeah. I'll tell you, having yeah. a photo of that would be fucking awesome, Dude. If, if it's possible. So here's what I'm going to do, because the sheriff does this to me all the time. You can imagine as a sheriff, he gets all kinds of gifts, yeah. right? And so he'll usually send me a picture of his latest, greatest gift, yeah. and he'll be like, hey, do you have one of these? <laughs> oh, no, you don't, because yeah. you're not a sheriff. Yeah. So <laughs> Shove that right up. That's right. That's right, buddy. Thank you, Mike. Awesome. I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for coming. Thanks for the book and, and the coin, which is already up. Uh, for you guys, I uh, appreciate you turning, tuning in uh, each show. Without your support, we wouldn't be able to do what you do. Hope you enjoyed the episode. episode. If you didn't, choke yourself. <laughs> and until next time, this is Mike Drop. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.